everyone. This is the Bowie and Burns Take 5 weekly podcast. We do this live. And it's called Take 5 because we take five topics that are interesting to each of us. We take five minutes apiece to discuss. And we do this every Friday. That's right. And this duo makes up Jerry. Jerry Bowie is a digital forensics expert. And he enjoys multimodal format. The other half of BNB is Cassie Burns. Cassie is a tech attorney and she excels at herding cats. So yeah, yeah I really want to find out why you chose that. So what, are you herding cats lately? That's what I'm guessing. You know, I think, I think anytime there's a project management aspect to our, our work, which you don't have to necessarily be an attorney or not an attorney. Not all attorneys are good at herding cats, but I think anytime you have a big project on deck, which could be, which could be litigation or review or anything like that, there's a lot of herding cats. You got to follow up with people, know who's doing what, you know, what those, those deadlines are, you know, make sure they're going to hit the deadlines, all that fun stuff. So yeah, well, tell me about multimodal format. Yeah, I, you know, I, I heard this from Mark Zuckerberg. I think he's pivoting a little bit and he recently, yeah, he recently was emphasizing more AI projects at Meta. And I read this article where he said that he's thinking about all the multimodal ways that you can interact with audiences and with data. And I thought, well, that's kind of alluding to Metaverse. So it gives me a sense that, you know, he's, and I didn't see the word metaverse in this announcement at all. So I think the pivot is a little less on metaverse, not that they're, you know, not investing in that because I, I suspect that's still a major priority for them, but to kind of keep up with all the AI stuff going around them because they do have their own large language model. Um, it's right. called Yama, right? Based off of LLM, that's just, you know, it makes sense. Large language model. You add a couple A's in there, it's Yama. But I think they're going to resurrect uh, that, you know, it's been around for a while, but those projects weren't a huge success. And it's like okay, llama. I think there's that, you know, yeah. it's like a llama like that. Is it Yama or llama? It's llama. I think okay. llama. So you gotta, you gotta love that. Cause I know you love llamas. So yeah, so we'll see a little bit more AI, maybe a little bit more emphasis on AI, at least marketing wise and a little less on metaverse, you know? You'll see some balance that I think going forward. So I, I I like that term multimodal. So I thought I'd bring it up in the at the top here. Yeah, and I I suspect, and I could be wrong. I know nothing. I suspect that that's a branding thing. You know, I think that there there may be some distancing they're wanting to do with maybe some of the attitudes or opinions around just the word metaverse. Because I, I mean, I know I say the word metaverse and people cringe. They don't like it at all. Which you know, there's a lot of like fantasy dreaming, you know, we're not there in a lot of different reasons if you've read Metaverse by Matthew Ball. But, you know, Disney CEO said something to the effect of, you know, don't call it Metaverse. Call I can't remember the phrase they were calling, but it was something like immersive right. entertainment or something like that. Just because of the Metaverse term, I think, kind of has a visceral reaction, I think, in a lot of people's minds. It's the same thing with NFT. Right, Cassie? People are absolutely moving away from the the term NFT for similar reasons, I think. Maybe been overhyped for, for too long. 
I think so. I think so. And you, when you overhype and underdeliver, it's just you know you lose a little bit of the goodwill associated with that branding. So, yeah, but the generative AI stuff is still going on strong. You know, Absolutely. I have to pop off. I believe. Can you that ChatGPT has only been around for fourteen weeks since it was? Doesn't it seem like a time since it was announced? There's been so much frenetic activity around it. Absolutely. And I feel like that's the only thing that people are talking about on LinkedIn. But, you know, it's funny and talking and thinking about echo chambers. You know, I, I have a hobby skincare Instagram account and I a, a friend was talking about she's in law school and she has one, too. And, and she's talking about a professor wants her to read 90 pages a week or something like that. And I was like, just run that through ChatGPT and get a summary from ChatGPT. And she was, what's ChatGPT? So... And, and, you know, this is yeah. a Gen Z person not knowing what ChatGPT is. So it's not like, you know, we, we kind of just talk, talk in our own little echo chambers and it's good to step out and realize not everyone is reading the same thing that we, we are. So it's moving on to our yeah. next official topic. Let's talk about ACAN, the Academy of Court Appointed Neutrals. There are a lot of acronyms in this week's takes, but we are both members of ACAN. We both joined it last year. And I'm going to be able to go to the conference. You're, I think, I think he has some scheduling conflicts and not able to go. But I've been trying. Uh, you know, I think I'll... you probably would much rather be. Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, conferences are fun, but they they can also be, you know, socially fatiguing at times. But you know, it's kind of a great organization that is under the radar. I think in the e-discovery space, and yet, which both of us mm -hmm. work in or investigation space, and it's ripe for people to get involved in our space. So it's an organization for neutrals. They changed their name this past year, which I thought was great. It was originally Academy of Court Appointed Masters, and they really took a very thoughtful and introspective turn at that name or at that word masters and, and the ne negative connotations it has with a lot of people in the US. And I think, you know, as trying to be arbiters of bringing social justice and neutrality, they really wanted to move away from having a name that does have, you know, not the best vibe from people for very good reasons. So they made the change this past year. And it's also been a year where special neutrals or special masters as they are officially called in a lot of states was in the news with, with you know, the Trump investigation and everything. And that really, I think, highlighted and got in, you know, more common vernacular that there's this role that can provide assistance to the judiciary. And I know one thing that ACAN is trying to do is get a more diverse group of people who can serve as special neutrals or special masters, which, you know, there are a lot of different roles they can serve to the judiciary. It could be, you know, you have an expertise in something like forensics or like e-discovery, or you're helping with very large cases dealing with the settlement of people who have suffered a great horrible thing you know like the 9-11 victims there was a special master that had to go through and decide who gets paid what there's a there's a movie on netflix about it and um you know i think it's very admirable that they're trying to get more diversity and really talk to the judiciary as well about don't just pick your buddy to be the special master we really want it to be a diverse group because they're making decisions for a diverse group of people. So would love to hear your thoughts on ACAN because I know, of course, you joined as well. Yeah, I mean, I joined to try to offer my speciality in the mix, right? So that's digital forensics. And I understood that you didn't have to have your JD, right? right. I'm not an attorney. I don't have my JD, but I can still serve as 
a neutral in these instances. Right. So, you know, I thought that was a wonderful thing to do. I mean, you still get paid, right? There, there's right. some cost splitting arrangements that, you know, when, and I've also, as a expert witness, had special masters. That's what they were called at the time, special masters on my matters. And the expert on both sides really act as facilities and mm-hmm. facilitating really complex technical topics that perhaps there isn't enough training by by the judge and by others involved to better understand it and clear the docket so that these things can move faster right. they're not stuck from right. so e-discovery or forensics at least for those things that i specialize in so you know if for any listener out there who has an area of specialty or they're really good cat herders because sometimes you do have to be a good cat herder they just need someone to help manage a very busy group of people. You know, look into ACAM and see what resources are there are there and see if it's something you're interested in joining. I'm a member of their incubator program, the, their first incubator program, where they're trying to teach people new to this space to get trade up. Because I know e-discovery, but I don't know how to be special neutral. I don't have any experience in mediation or arbitration. So please check it out. We'd love to have you. And even if you're not an e-discovery listener, if you have another specialty, like if you're really good, knowledgeable in blockchain or Web3, like those areas of expertise, I think are going to be rolling through the court systems and they're going to need people who are knowledgeable in those spaces. So now moving on, as we should, again, continuing with my cat herding skills, Jerry, tell me a little bit about this content authentication or authenticity initiative. Yeah, this speaks directly to all the deep fake content that I've been pushing out there and that we discussed at the University of Florida eDiscovery Conference. Uh, it's catching everyone's attention because of the danger that it poses in a lot of different ways. And there is actually an initiative. It's spearheaded by Adobe, but by many others too. It, there's already a consortium of member companies, AP News, BBC, Reuters, as I'm looking through this. It also includes camera manufacturers, Nikon and Leica, and those that have photo repositories like Getty Images, and then those that control operating systems like Microsoft, and then those that control social media platforms like Twitter. So the idea is to cover the entire ecosystem to prevent the spread of deepfakes, the spread of misinformation and disinformation. So they're going to start with images and video. And Adobe's a perfect company spearhead this because they own a lot of the industry-leading tools like Photoshop, right? On the photo editing side of things, they also have video editing software that's really popular. It's called Premiere. And so the idea is to leverage this specification, A another activity or another group called the 2PA, if I have that right. I think it's a, collaborative, a collaboration. And it specifically stands for, I think, the Consortium of Content Provenance and Authenticity. Something that effect, when I think of C2PA, I think of C3PO, I don't know why, but they're the ones that issued the technical standard for capturing this provenance detail. So if you're, if you're inside something like Photoshop, you can embed, much like EXIF data, right? You can embed a hash code into the image and you could digitally sign it. And so if you're the, the first one where this image originates, if you're the creator, essentially, then you can embed this information in there. And so it is a tamper evident um, list of metadata that you can capture as it moves from one place to the other. So as if, imagine it being tracked software through the operating system, through the social media site, you know, all these participants are going to help enforce 
the standard. But the difference is it's all not captured in the image itself. It's really just a minimum set of metadata. The rest of the metadata is actually stored in the cloud. Mm. And so what does it sound like, Cassie, with, when you're trying to do provenance and you're trying to track Candy it? Candy already a, called it. Candy already called it. She said blockchain. She said blockchain. So blockchain would make a perfect solution for something like that, right? Except that yeah. it's not it's not quite on blockchain yet. There is a prototype for it to be tracked on blockchain. But right now there's a verify server that CAI, the content authenticity initiative is running. And that's where it's synchronizing between the media and the server. So that if you have, so this is where the checkpoints are, right? So if you receive a piece of media and maybe, you know, think about requiring that before you can post something on Twitter, for example, requiring that it has an entry in the CAI database. Right. And by the way, that hash, we're very familiar with hashing, right? In, in this right. Mm -hmm. So, it, and you, you can strip metadata, right? From a file, just like you can strip EXIF data from a, a file, but it is a hash of the file itself. So if that did get stripped, you can compute the hash, go to the verify server, check and look at its provenance, its audit trail history. So the idea is as it goes through any kind of incorporation to a new piece of work, Right. So if you have that image and you're incorporating it into an ad, right, you, the software, the operating system, the platforms involved, write this information back to the verify server and show all the changes that it makes as it traverses the internet. That's really fascinating. I feel like we could talk about that in great detail. And I want to hear, you know, we, we have to move on to our next topic, but I'd love to hear how that's going to be handled for things like live content because to Candy's point, she said, how do we know it's really you too on the podcast, what sort of things are being done to address like live feed that could be deep fake enabled fraud behavior, but got to move on, Jerry, got to move on, stay on theme. Ordinals. Okay. So Ordinals is not the next Marvel IP movie that's about to come out. No, it's not about like superheroes. Ordinals are kind of like in very simple terms nfts for bitcoin blockchain now um, i'm not going to drill too much into the minutiae here but the bitcoin blockchain is the first big big blockchain out there you know based off of the white paper that satoshi nakamoto came out with who is unknown or they are unknown and really the purpose of bitcoin is for financial transfers when they're you don't have trust between parties now, Ethereum was built, another blockchain built after Bitcoin, a few years after, and it created some additional functionality to those protocols for that blockchain that allowed for things like NFT. So nearly like relational type fields, because the blockchain, again, it's a ledger. So there are fields in that ledger, like as an Excel spreadsheet. Ethereum allows for a little bit more functionality by letting you have like a relational field. So for NFT, the most common is a profile picture NFT. And so very frequently or very often, the image associated with that profile picture NFT is not on chain. It's not actually saved on the Ethereum blockchain itself. So saved somewhere else, but there's a reference to it on the blockchain. So the URL or the IPFS address, there are some Ethereum NFTs that are saved on chain. They're considered more valuable. I think now it's one. Now, recently, 
Bitcoin in the past like month or two has created a mechanism to where you can have an NFT on the Bitcoin blockchain. And it has functionality came to because of an upgrade that they had back in 2017. And what you can do is upload text or you can upload an image. I think you can even do video to the actual coin blockchain. And, you know, this is something we need to talk about more. I know this is a five minute conversation, but you can go to web browser and go and look and see what's being, it's an ordinals browser. You can just Google ordinal browser and see what ordinals are getting minted. And you see things like text. And I was talking to our friend, John Riggler, and I was like, what is all this text? Because I was just seeing like a wall of redundant text with slight change. And it's JSON code for SOTS, SOTS names. So kind of like F domains, some people are doing the same thing on Bitcoin. And so it would be like Cassie.SOTS for Satoshi, which is the smallest increment of, of like amount that's allowed in a Bitcoin. And so they're doing the names, but because they're not preventing duplicates, the original name is the name that had lowest ordinal number. So I don't really know. I feel like that that's not, that's not the Bitcoin vibe to do something like that. But I think that they're based off of some things I was reading. They're trying to create like some, you know, your identity tied to your SOT name. So, but anyway, Beyond that, there are other issues that we have to think about because the blockchain Bitcoin is immutable. You can't delete anything that's on it. It's a append only, okay? So I saw pictures of babies on there. You know, I saw people were posting photos. People, I didn't see anything too egregious, but if someone posts something that is, you know, copyright infringement or, you know, revenge porn or child pornography, what do, you, what do you do about that in that situation? Now, I was talking to, again to John Riggler about this, and you, usually, like, I was looking at it through an ordinal's browser, and he said, you know, these ordinal browsers could screen out things and suppress images, ordinals that have images that, you know, don't, you know, ca could cause problems, right? So right. I guess then you, you could still go find it and you could still go look at it if you found it natively. So then you nearly have like shadow ordinals, I guess you'd say. But anyway, privacy attorneys need to know about this. You know, trademark copyright attorneys definitely need to know about this. We all need to know about this. That's, that's why I brought it up. So we got to move on to the next thing though, Jerry. So let's hear what your next take is. Sure. And I have to give credit for this next one, ENFSI, another acronym, to one of the, I mean, He's been watching since the first installment of BNB podcast. It's Eli Daniel Simpson. He brought this up in the comments of our last podcast. And this is the Indian Network of Forensic Science Institute. They just released, and they're in the EU. And so you can go to their website at ensfi.eu. And they just released a best practice manual. So it's a BPM around audio authenticity analysis. So very, I think, on theme with deep fakes. This isn't necessarily addressing deep fakes, but it is a multimedia forensics approach. So they've listed in really thorough fashion a methodology or principles or techniques, it's all the above, that allows a multimedia forensics examiner to look at a piece of audio and detect whether it's been manipulated, right? Or will help them do that process. And I've done audio forensics in the past too. And my particular case involved two people, 
sitting in a restaurant and one of the restaurant or attendees or the lunch attendees surreptitiously recorded the conversation, right? And it was represented as a continuous recording from start to end. It was never, you know, it was never stopped and restarted or manipulated or anything like that. But that was the first thing that we wanted to find is whether or not we could detect any cuts within that within that piece of media. And one of the obvious things is to take the environmental surroundings. So you can imagine it's pretty noisy. There's some dynamics around the acoustics that are going on with all the people chattering in the background, the music coming over the speakers, the conversation itself. So sometimes we would hear someone speaking and stopping mid-sentence. So those mid-sentence cutoffs are a giveaway. When the music in the background shifts from one song to another, another dead giveaway. So it's a lot of perceptual kind of analysis and you can be aided by software too, by the way. So if you could feed this piece of media through a piece of software that gives you the waveform analysis, so you can turn these sounds into visual representations. That'll give you, yeah, it'll give you it almost like ham radio screens where you can see like the amplitude of your voice. Um, it's like that, similar to that, but then there's spectral frequency analysis. There's all kinds of really helpful tools at your disposal, but you can use that and this approach by ENSI, ENFSI, to really cover all your bases. So you don't focus on just one thing, but you you generate hypotheses, a zero hypothesis, a, um, a prime hypothesis, and then test those against each other to make sure that you're not being biased. So if you follow this methodology, it's a scientifically sound um, way to approach audio analytics. And I'm very interested on how that will be impacted by deep fakes, because as we know, deep fakes, you know, while you're doing this manual manipulation, deep fakes driven by AI is very good at mimicking the real thing. So if it's able to insert a piece of audio in the middle and it does it in a, uh, an undetectable way, I think that these types of best practice manuals will need to be updated for the latest and greatest techniques that AI is using to counteract these other detection techniques. So it's AI versus AI, I think, ultimately at the end of the day. I think a lot of things are having to get updated in the next, you know, that we're definitely at a wellspring of change, I think. Now, the next thing and the final thing we're going to talk about is MMIWG, which MMIWG is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And I just felt like this was a very appropriate thing to touch on and for a couple of reasons. One, International Women's Day is coming up, and a lot of times we use that day to applaud people who meant a lot in our lives. But I think it should also be a day when we reflect on people who are at a disadvantage or taken advantage of, or in this situation, they're pretty much forgotten about in some ways, not by their families and friends, of course. But I recently watched a documentary on Showtime called Murder in Bighorn. It's a three-part series, and it follows the people living near the Crow Reservation in southern Montana, near Billings, Montana. And it focuses on Luella Bryan, and I actually connected with her on LinkedIn and talked to her and would love to have her be guests at some point. Um, but it talks about some of the women in the past. It, it focuses on certain women, but not all of them, of course. Luella herself had an aunt who went missing and was murdered when she was only 16. So it focuses in particular on three girls within like a two-year period. One is Henny Scott. The other is Kaysera Stops Pretty Places. And the third is Selena Not Afraid. And they all were 14 to 18 years old. And they went missing. Wow. And they were found days later in a place that had been thoroughly looked at before and were found to have been dead, died from hypothermia. 
which seems like very suspect. And there's a lot of complications around all of this. There are jurisdictional issues because sometimes they're on, you know, whether or not they're on reservation property or not, who is the suspect, whether or not they're Indian or whether they're not Indian, you know, that has an effect on who has jurisdiction to investigate. And if you have jurisdiction, you know, if it's the local authorities, the city authorities that are just outside the reservation, the FBI is not going to come in or BIA is not going to come in unless they're asked for it. But, you know, some of the explanations, the coroner's report, they died of hypothermia. Oh, we cremated her so we couldn't do an autopsy. It seems very suspicious. But what can we do to help? And it makes me think, Jerry, the Internet of Things, like, it's, re- it's getting harder and harder to get away with crimes these days because we all have phones, you know, and it right. seems like there's an opportunity to maybe provide some sort of, you know, guidance to family members, like have your kids always have a phone on and they geolocate and stuff like that. So, you know, I just wanted to bring this up, you know, just initiate a conversation, Pandy. It looks like she's already talking about a life preserver project. Yes, I know about that from Maribel and Mike as well. So that that's great. Exactly. Human trafficking. So anyway, just really wanted to highlight, be aware of this. I would love to have at some point we've talked about maybe having guests inside podcasts. We'd love to have Luella come on and talk about it because I don't want to talk for the people affected directly by MMIWG. I want them to be able to tell their own stories. The last thing they need is a, a white person to speak for them. But I do want to just like alert our communities. Like these are things that maybe we might be able to help with. So in the last minute or two, we'd love to hear like what you think of that, Jerry. That's wonderful. I'm so impressed that you're bringing awareness to that. And these are the sorts of things that drive us, these topics, right? They're not always related to e-discovery, et cetera, but the things that we're concerned with. And hopefully we can bring our experience to bear. I mean, when we were at the University of Florida e-discovery conference and they had that pro bono session, that really, that really hit me in the heart and that we take our knowledge and our experience for granted where others can, especially the underserved and ones that can't that don't have access to justice, we could really help those folks out in a really major way. So I think that these sorts of things are important to bring up and hopefully we can get involved. I hope so too. So we're here at the end of 30 minutes. Thanks for tuning in this week and hopefully you'll join us next week. We'll see you next week, live every Friday. That's right. Keep laughing, keep listening, and keep your eye on all that data. All your data. Bye, everyone. Bye.